0: Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. Today I'm your host, Carl Nellis, and we are talking with Liam Cole Young. Dr. Young teaches in the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. We're talking about his, his new book, List Cultures, Knowledge and Poetics from Mesopotamia to BuzzFeed, out from Amsterdam University Press and, here in the U.S., University of Chicago Press. Liam, welcome to the show. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you about this complex issue interesting, detailed, very scholarly book, in part because it touches on so many relevant and interesting things and challenges. will certainly challenge my thinking and I think will challenge in really productive ways uh, readers who are interested in any of the fields that you engage. Could we start with a little bit about who you are, uh, what your training is, what your background is, and how that brought you to List Cultures?
1: Sure, yeah. I'm. Uh, so I did... Uh... PhD in media studies at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada. Um, And uh, I think the book uh, emerges very clearly from that um, discipline. And um, the reason that I sort of ended up in, in media studies and media theory was it, Provided a sort of welcome home for inviting in lots of different interests and disciplines and literatures um, that I had been you know, kind of working in throughout my uh, undergraduate career and into into grad school and things like that. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, originally, I I started in history and international relations so way back when sort of undergraduate days, uh, and then switch gears a little bit as I moved into grad school and started thinking about popular culture and cultural studies, cultural history, those types of things. And What I sort of found as I moved through those those disciplines and that sort of training was that the sort of technical aspects of culture and the kind of infrastructural aspects of culture were uh, were shifting really quite rapidly uh, all around us. And so media studies um, gave me a place in which to think through those kind of intersections between uh, technology, politics and uh, cultural activity. Hmm. Right. So, you know, the the book is the kind of uh, extension of those, you know, those early days. And uh, I kind of landed on this particular object that I found to be really productive to to invite them all in. And so uh, I started working on it back then and have been working on it ever since.
0: Mm. so how would you uh describe your book maybe what's the the 30 second pitch of your book maybe that you gave to the publisher when you were when you were looking for someone to work with you on getting this out well the i, I have seriously pitch it to people as it's a book
1: that argues for the list as the origin of culture which is <laughs> right, right which is uh an aphorism that i picked up from umberto Eco, who was you know great for such for such things um but the the sort of brief pitch is that there is this sort of layer of activity, right? There are these forms through which culture circulates that we tend not to pay attention to, that we tend not to notice, that seem to kind of fade into the background and we take them for granted. Uh, And yet they are so crucial to the way that we understand ourselves and our place in the world. Uh, And so what the book is trying to do, develop some tools for thinking through uh, some of the ways that listing techniques have been used throughout history uh, and how they are a site of immense kind of power and uh, conflict.
0: So one of the things that you make clear in the introduction is that in approaching the list, you take what you call the, the media materialist approach and that it's by looking at lists in this particular way that you come to the understanding that you've just laid out for us. What is media materialism and how is it important to, to grappling with the questions that you're asking here?
1: Well, media materialism is this term that some of us have started to use to signify uh, a general kind of attentiveness to the kind of material instantiations of cultural technologies. So media materialism is attentive to, uh, you know, the kind of uh, the surfaces upon which we make inscriptions, whether the, that's paper or chalk or uh, silicon. Right. Mm-hmm. And kind of really being alive to the, the differences between media platforms, media services and things like that, because the argument that a lot of scholars working in this tradition make that it's there that these kind of crucial distinctions uh, and these crucial sort of activities are are occurring, that serve to kind of organize or shape our broader senses of space and time. And so um, I see media materialism as as part of this lineage of studying sort of material culture, right? So we have historical materialism, we have cultural materialism, right? And these are disciplines that are trying to kind of incorporate and understand the kind of material instantiations of things like, uh, you know, ideology, and uh, forces and relations of production, and in the same way, media materialism is trying to kind of integrate those material aspects of media devices uh, and technologies into the conversation, so that we're not just thinking about how we use any any medium, whether it's uh, paper or television or a smartphone, but what are the kind of actual parameters of that device and how, do those stru- how does the structure of the device kind of impose certain forms and, and modes of use upon the user? Mm-hmm.
0: And when you, when, you say, when you talk about a device imposing forms of use on the user, there's a point in the book where you discuss why your approach can't simply just be dismissed as uh, technological determinism. Would this be a good time for you to kind of poke at that a little bit? Sure. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, technological determinism is this term that gets thrown around fair amount. I'm, yes. I think less <laughs> yeah. so less so today. We're we're starting to see a shift in that in the use of that term. But, um, you know, for for many years, it was used to signal as a kind of pejorative to signal, a uh, a kind of scholarship that was accused of denying the uh, sort of agency of human beings right as um, mm-hmm. sort of masters mm-hmm. of our uh, of our domain masters of our of our worlds so scholarship that was accused of technological determinism was was suggested to be uh, attaching agency to uh, to technologies and to media forms as the kind of drivers of history. But what that critique sort of misses, I think uh, is that. Surely technology determines something right because not all <laughs> yeah. not all technologies are are equal right not all technologies function in the same kind of way, and so each individual device platform format standard you know has certain kind of uh, limits to it has a certain kind of parameter it sets the rules of the game in a certain kind of way right which will structure how that object can be used or the way that that object is is taken up in the world right so uh you know the the uh the telephone is a kind of object that has material properties that determine in a certain way how we can use it and what it can be used for right so it's Mm -hmm. very much about the the voice and the mouth and the ear and the hand right those are the sensory aspects of the telephone and so what critiques of technological determinism ignore is the fact that that device determines the fact that someone who's hard of hearing is excluded from the discourse community of telephone conversation right Mm -hmm. and so um That's the kind of corrective that a lot of, you know, scholars working in this kind of broad umbrella category of media materialism are pushing back against is to say, like, you know, to acknowledge these structural boundaries or limitations uh, is not to uh, deny agency to humans or to be anti-human. It's just to be to be honest about the ways that we are constantly kind of inframed by uh, devices and networks and uh, Mm -hmm. and processes.
0: So let's jump into how the list functions as a technical device. Mm -hmm. And then from there, how you run it through history. Um, Let's start with Mesopotamia, where you begin with the history of the list and how it enters into human relations. So one of the things that was really fun about the project and
1: surprising in, in the best possible way was that, you know, when I first started thinking about this, Thinking about lists, it was very contemporary, right? It was very much Mm -hmm. about um, sort of promotional culture, digital culture, the way that people were using lists um, online, right? So the sort of Facebook 25 things craze, (laughs) you know, all of these like um, best of all time collections, pitchforks, like – top 100 signal singles of each year or whatever. Uh, and so I was like really interested in, in this sort of um, cultural activity that was happening around the list. Um, mm-hmm. And so once I sort of grasped onto this object, I started to think about, okay, well, you know, what else has been written about this? How have other people thought about this? There was a kind of surprising lack of of scholarship on on the object, and so that you know is the is the best possible result, right? You you identify that there's a, a great gap and a great opportunity here, and so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of what I could find came from uh, anthropology and ancient history and histories of writing. Uh, and I was really surprised and, and uh, excited to discover that listing, you know, is generally accepted to be the uh, the earliest form of writing, the, at least the earliest surviving form of writing. Right. So right. we tend to think, you know, um, we tend to assume certain things about writing in our sort of general day to day cultural lives. Right. We think of writing as stories, as narratives, you know, maybe we think about writing as, um, scholarship or kind of scientific reports, these types of things, but actually the vast majority uh, of writing that we do and have always done is administrative, right? It's about Mm -hmm. bookkeeping. It's about, uh, inventorying. It's about, uh, memos, you know, as great scholars like John Guillory and Joanne Yates have taught us. And so It has always been thus. Right. And so um, when you sort of survey the emergence of writing, uh, you start to see that it actually wasn't the epics of literature and narrative that emerged first, but it was uh, grain inventories and uh, and receipts (laughs) and things like this. Right. And so uh, so that's that's kind of the 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 Mesopotamia in the in the subtitle is to is to show right this. Not only this huge, broad history of lists, which allows me to borrow Echo's uh, aphorism about lists inventing culture, uh, but also to kind of foreground for us that there are these forms of writing that have structured cultural activity and human activity for millennia that we should probably pay a little bit more attention to.
0: I don't want to leave behind something that you just said because it runs through the argument of your book and it's almost, uh, and you can correct me if I misread this, but I see a a conflict or an opposition between uh, the list and the way that uh, the kinds of uses that lists can be put to and the kinds of thinking that they allow and narrative. Can you talk a little bit about uh, list versus narrative or listing versus, in some cases, you talk about the linearity of narrative? So Um, how was it you came to see this kind of opposition between lists and linearity?
1: Well, lists are, uh, they're a different kind of mode of organizing
0: information, right? So, uh,
1: part of what media theory and information theory allows us to think about is in this kind of meta way about, uh, you know, stories, or any kind of cultural kind of expression, as you know, organizations of data points or, uh, or organizations of information, right? So when you want to write a book, you want to tell a story, you organize the events in a certain kind of way. And narratives are this kind of cultural form that have a lot of connective tissue between between the ideas, right? They have, and they have certain kinds of structures, right? So there is a kind of Uh, You know, conventional narrative has a kind of beginning, middle, and end. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, the relations between those different points or those different items within a kind of narrative structure is is clearly defined in this kind of generic way, according to its genre, right? But the list is a little bit different, right? The list is an organization of data that is about accumulation, right, aggregation. Mm -hmm. And there are different ways that one can carve pathways through a list as a gathering of items that are different than the way that one sort of carves a path through a narrative structure. So Mm
0: -hmm. it's
1: not that I want to set up a grand opposition between these two, (laughs) uh, but just to sort of isolate lists as, you know, a, a different kind of structure the organization of information that allows us to do different kinds of things. So uh, it's about drawing things together. It's about organization. It's about administration. It's about kind of the minutiae of day-to-day life in a way that uh, narratives are about stories and you know histories and mythologies and, and these kinds of things.
0: Uh, later in our conversation, I want to come back to the idea of aggregation because you uh, do some really interesting things with aggregation and disaggregation in the way that, for instance, the BuzzFeed listicle functions. That comes toward the end of your book, where you go, uh, after chapter one and kind of the history and, uh, and looking at the emergence of writing. You, <laughs> well, you do come to the present, you go to the pop chart. Mm hmm. And you talk about data and knowledge and the creation of a cultural field with the way that pop charts function. Mm hmm. Um- I talked
1: earlier about my, you know the kind of origins of the project, um, mm-hmm. laying in in uh, sort of more contemporary settings and popular music was I think the field that was the crucial one for my thinking about this mm-hmm. because it was where I first started to notice there seemed to me at the time to be no cultural field that was more uh, amenable to listing activities and and for which the the list was was more important, right, to the way that knowledge uh, and kind of cultural activity circulated um, uh, within the field, right? So, top forty charts, uh, you know, sales charts are these um, sort of um, structures of order used within the industry to organize information, to c- can communicate information between, you know, producers and consumers to do all of these things. So, lists do a lot in popular right. music. Certainly from the uh, industrial side of things and then, you know, from the fan side of things, too, it seems very much part of musical fandom to organize your collection, alphabetize it, you know, um, have your list of top 10, whatever, top 10 Paul McCartney songs versus top 10 John Lennon songs. You know, it's like it's important to the way that people communicate their taste and their judgments um, and these types of things. And so, um, and so that was where I kind of started to take some of these tools from, from media studies and information studies and to try to kind of apply them to, to this, um, to this object, right. To this field of cultural activity. And so, uh, I really like the phrase unblack boxing right. <laughs> from, right. from, um, science and technology studies, you know, uh, Bruno Latour and, and other thinkers in that field, you know, you know, opening up the black box, which is you know the thing that we take for granted and haven't really uh, put under the analytic, uh, under our analytic eye in this kind of way before, and and trying to take it apart and see how it works and how it's made and then how it goes out in the world and the differences that it makes, uh, and so uh, once you start to do that to popular music lists, you get a feel for the way that these things carve out. Genres, they carve out taste communities, they carve out canons uh, by which the field kind of understands itself, both in terms of producers and consumers. Um, So that is kind of a major part of that segment of the argument and then the other side of it is that um, well the the kind of related side is that a lot of the concepts and the categories and things that we use to understand and talk about popular music right uh, emerged first on the on the charts so the 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 category of popular derived kind of directly from these these uh, lists of popular songs heard in vaudeville last week Mm. and these kinds of things right and so before (laughs) popular was ever identified as like a market niche or a genre, which is the way we kind of understand that term now, it was used as this kind of administrative term by, uh, you know, sheet music producers uh, and earlier radio uh, programmers and, uh, and some of the people from important to the early history of, uh, of American popular music.
0: Over the next two chapters, you really dive into uh, the way that lists function in, and you draw a little on Foucault and you talk about governmentality. Uh, and the way that lists function in organizing and structuring political choices and the rise of statistics. But you go back to the invention of double-entry bookkeeping. So let's jump there, and can you talk about lists and the state and the fact and how double-entry bookkeeping plays into your argument?
1: Yeah, well, there... um That section of the book arises from thinking a little bit more fulsomely about how lists are used to administer, right? So once... Once I kind of understood this is a form that is deployed in or in order to order, uh, all of a sudden, you know, that kind of crystallizes out into a whole bunch of different um, problematics, right? A whole bunch of different ways of trying to understand the role of these sort of um, hidden administrative or infrastructural uh, forms and and, mm-hmm. uh, and techniques. Uh, so, you know, thinking about double entry bookkeeping, Mary Povey, eminent sort of uh, history of science scholar wrote this great book a number of years ago where she traces the origins of the sort of category of the fact, right? Mm -hmm. The -hmm. nature of facticity and the kind of empirical knowledge that is so crucial to the history of Western science and modern kind of science. And so part of her argument is that techniques of double entry bookkeeping in sort of 14th, 15th century Italian commerce are... Part of this story, right, because it was on, here on paper where a whole host of, of kind of concepts that lead us toward the emergence of something like the concept of the fact arise, one of which is sort of transparency, right? So the, the books are about laying out the inventory of capital or of goods that are being exchanged, right, in a tra- in a way that is transparent and open. And can be recreated and recalled, so that's this is part of it it's also um, about kind of capturing these processes that unfold through time and spatializing them into a formal structure on paper and creating this kind of living archive of what has happened. My contribution to that train of thinking is is to kind of bring this analysis of the format right because a double entry The books, the double-entry books, are a series of kind of interoperable lists, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. this list structure is here at this moment that we can point to as a, as a generative one, right. In which right. new conceptions of transparency and um, authenticity and even um, one's sort of uh, like almost purity before God is, is, is displayed, right. there's this kind of religious, these are kind of overcoded by the religious discourse of the time, right. Mm-hmm. To be uh, conscientious, to keep conscientiously one's books was to be a good subject of, of God and to live a godly kind of life. And so, um, you know, as I'm following this form through history, this seemed to me to be a very kind of crucial and important moment in which we see this formal structure functioning in this, in this kind of way. And so I tried to unpack that a little bit and then, um, expand out from there and show that, you know, once the concept of the fact arises uh you know from these these double entry lists um that that concept goes out in the world and does all kinds of work right it it mm-hmm. it is a kind of anchor point upon which a whole uh, epistemology uh kind of arises right so statistics and calculation yeah. and all of these very familiar ways of knowing uh familiar mm-hmm. to us now as sort of modern people, ways of knowing are are built upon these basic units, such as the concept of the fact. And so introducing a kind of formal analysis of, of how that happens, you know, on paper before somebody names it as something is part of my kind of contribution to that literature, because we ha- we tend to mm-hmm. think we think about intellectual history or or social history political history we tend to think about we tend to think about it as histories of ideas or histories of great people or great events and in actuality what the historical record shows us is that history is about you know everyday kind of techniques of administration and and you know exchange and commerce and all of these things. Uh, and and so it's not just that somebody has the idea, the fact, right? That concept emerges out of these ways of doing and ways of knowing um, mm-hmm. that are kind of implicit. So that's kind of the entry point into that section of the book.
0: And you mentioned calculation, but a couple of other terms that become uh, important going forward in your argument are compression and circulation. And that does pull us into the next chapter as well. But maybe can you talk about the three together, calculation, compression, and circulation, how the list functions for those three processes?
1: I kind of identified those three as a useful heuristic
0: through which to understand
1: some of these forces and processes of modernity in which I started to see uh, the list as being particularly important, right? So what I'm doing in this, well, throughout the book, but it, particularly in this section, is is sort of tracing the list through the world, right? Trying to see yeah, yeah. W- what it is that it does, and what lists do is that they facilitate certain kinds of activities, right? So the mm-hmm. the act of administration of kind of drawing things together that a list allows us to do uh, is done for with certain ends in mind right so calculation compression circulation are three such things so uh, calculation is a kind of way of knowing that is about uh, moving things around probabilities it, it kind of opens up in the in the modern period i think the literature shows us right the historical record shows us that this like way of looking at the world opens up that is about formalizing Uh, operations with certain ends kind of in mind, right? So calculation is about, you know, efficiency. It's about moving stuff around in as short amount of time as possible, right? So compression is part of this, right? The three are, the reason it's kind of hard to talk, about them individuals because I view them as kind of this nest of related concepts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So calculation, compression, circulation are all about, you know, these kinds of new enterprises and these new expressions of, of culture and politics and commerce that arise, I think, in the modern period. And what we see is that the things that are listed, you know, vary. So sometimes we see lists of things Sometimes we see lists of people. Sometimes we see lists of times or of events uh, or of inventories, right? And so in each case, it seemed to me that uh we can see that this is an object that's sort of facilitating the manipulation or the kind of movement or the the molding of whatever material is listed according mm-hmm. to the ends that the lister has in mind and and that's where it kind of brought me into some strange some strange kind of resonances between seemingly very divergent fields of of uh, of culture and history, you know popular music history and this kind of longer histories of statecraft. And, you know, into, you know, the sort of emergence of, of, uh, you know, 20th century fascism and and, uh, Mm -hmm. the Nazi census.
0: Well, and you talk about um, the way that lists are used in the Nazi census to uh, to make up a person. Mm-hmm. Well, any list is about uh, drawing a border.
1: It's about, it's an act of immense, I think, immense power, right? It's an act of pulling together certain things or certain people, drawing a border around them and uh, keeping others out and perhaps attaching a title to that collection of people, right? And so when we think about the history of the Third Reich and the history of Nazism, this is a major kind of a major plank through which that vision of the world was attempted to be forged, right? Through mm-hmm. uh, categorization, striking these, uh, what Foucault calls, between categories of people, right? Between groups of people. And so mm-hmm. the state comes to see individuals according to the way that they are categorized. And the places in which they are categorized are not just in people's minds, or people's assumptions are in kind of ideological positions, but are actually on paper, right? Are actually right. on right. population registries and passenger manifest lists and these kinds of uh, banal, seemingly um, seemingly unimportant material forms.
0: You know, you discuss the, these uses of lists as an aspect of modernity. And there's an interesting section here where you discuss uh, various terms for naming this modern orientation, and you discuss whether it could be called administrative or bureaucratic or informational, and you choose logistical. Can you talk about why logistic, a logistical orientation or logistical modernity is the right way uh, or was a useful way for you to talk about the kinds of relationships that are put in place uh, with listing in what we consider uh, modernity?
1: I like, I like the term logistics. It's helpful to me because it captures movement and it- it's temporal. Part of the history of modernity is that it is a history of building, right? Of Mm -hmm. reshaping the earth in all of these quite sort of catastrophic mega ways, right? The history of modern infrastructure teaches us this and Modern systems of of governance and uh, statecraft and all of these things is kind of like this story of um, uh, sort of increasing the scale of this uh, this reshaping, right? Reshaping mm-hmm. the world in in mm-hmm. in certain ways, and so trying to contribute to a history of modernity is to understand the different techniques or strategies or projects of this of this kind of uh, reshaping of the world, right? Um, that's what's kind of captured for me uh in the term logistics right so it's it's mm-hmm. it goes beyond uh administration uh and captures something about about this kind of uh reshaping of the world right and so it that's in in that section i offer an engagement with some of the sort of late career uh, meditations on technology from uh, Martin Heidegger, mm-hmm. who uh, has a lot to tell us, I think, about our orientation to technology, our orientation to the world, right? And how how the technologies and systems that we build in frame us and uh, sort of shape the way that we understand ourselves and each other and the world around us. Um, and so I call it a kind of orientation Logistical orientation rather than a worldview, because worldview to me implies something that is either conscious or is ideological. Orientation is a general kind of positioning toward the world or a kind of openness to the world, right? And so, what I'm trying to get at with that term, logistical orientation, is about the way that we view the world as what Heidegger called a kind of standing reserve of material Mm -hmm. to be marshaled according to our ends, whatever those Mm -hmm. ends
0: uh, may be. To be organized, to be inventoried, to be circulated, all of those things that the list functions to do. Yeah, exactly. And so and that's, you know, to
1: return to that kind of nest of, of concepts, right? I think that uh, compression, calculation, circulation are really at the heart of this logistical orientation, right? Because it's about calculating how to circulate as much material, you know, as much material in as quickly a manner as possible. And that involves compression and it involves data calculations and organization mm-hmm. of material in certain kinds of ways and it cuts across this general kind of orientation to the world that will reduce things from the natural environment and people in the same kind of way right and that's mm-hmm. what a sort of mm-hmm. a, a population registry testifies to i think is this general kind of uh, dehumanization right the treatment of of a of a human being as a data point uh within right. this larger kind of project of reshaping the world uh in a certain image and in that in that case in the image of the Third Reich.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is the right uh, time, too, to mention, you talk about this in the introduction and in the conclusion, you're not uh, dismissing or degrading or condemning the list. The list is is a tool or is a device, is a technology that can be used for various ends. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about uh, why that was an important point to make, um, that you're not condemning the list as Uh, as foolish or as evil itself the easy argument to
1: make would have been the the one of condemnation right the one that that comes down hard on listing techniques and views them as you know nothing more than this expression of evil you know of of negativity in the world but the history of listing that i explored you know through researching the project just wouldn't allow me to make that kind of claim like it's Mm -hmm. just not it's just not the case. You know, lists have functioned in lots of different ways throughout history and what they allow us to do is compare and contrast those larger kind of structures of of knowledge and of activity because the list operates at this kind of layer at which those larger concepts and techniques and actions, you know, upon which they are those are built, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um and so that's what allowed me to make some of these comparisons that on the surface appear counterintuitive or quite um, mm-hmm. you know, provocative. There's more to be said here than the list is either this or that, right? It is a lot of different things. And so this complicated history helps us to forge surprising connections that might um, expand the kind of horizon through which we uh, you know, think about knowledge and and history and poetics and these and these kinds of things, and so that's I tried to end the book you know after moving through some obviously fairly grim territory and thinking about you know modern fascism and the and statecraft mm-hmm. and these mm-hmm. kinds of uh, oppressive uses of listing techniques in order to police subjects and to kind of build structures of knowledge that would exclude and would justify genocide. Um, I tried to kind of push beyond that and into a sort of exploration of how lists have been used to build other kinds of structures, other kinds of imaginative experiments with alternate orders and ordering Mm -hmm. techniques that might not be expressions of state power against individual subjects and oppressed groups, but might be about you know, kind of exploding the boundaries and the horizons of the way that we think about the world in the hope that that might produce something new and more just. Yeah, something more just, I think, is probably the best way to put it.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's in the next chapter that you come to talk about uses of lists that haven't been dismissed or discussed as evil, but maybe as facile, uh, with, with the BuzzFeed listicle, though that's together with discussions of data analytics and, and ideas like big data that are in circulation today, can you talk a little bit about the way that you bring your analysis of the logistical orientation into the late 20th century, where you see its expansion in all kinds of ways?
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that I thought was important, and what like what my research showed was important. It, once I started kind of mapping the, these different operations and following lists through these different historical moments, is that this kind of orientation to the world and viewing, you know, viewing the world as a series of data points to be, you know, harvested and analyzed and kind of shuffled around, which I sort of show in the in the chapters on statecraft and not the nazi mm-hmm. census that that didn't just disappear right that didn't just go right. away um and so we see expressions of this which are obviously not marshaled toward other kinds of ends other kinds of projects um you know not associated with fascism and camps and genocide but are operating in the same kind of epistemological space right it's in the mm-hmm. same kind of mm-hmm. Um, way of knowing the world or way of orienting oneself to the world. And so digital computation is really built on uh, this kind of logistical, what I call a kind of logistical orientation. BuzzFeed is an interesting kind of case study to me because um, through it, we can read uh, a lot of these different vectors, right? Not only is BuzzFeed have this kind of surface expression of list culture, right? Because it is the, the online platform that I think has done the most to kind of bring listing into the forefront of our minds when we think about digital culture. Mm-hmm. But it, <laughs> yeah, you know, but it is itself also this strange platform or institutional form that is kind of lists all the way down. Right. So it's right. It has listicles, as it's the content that it produces, it is a vertically integrated company, right? It houses all of its content production, data analysis. It, uh, it has an in-house advertising team. It's like a the Hollywood, classical Hollywood studio system, right, where they, you know, Paramount owned all the cinemas and all the studios and all the cameras and all the equipment and had all the labor under contract. BuzzFeed is the same, it's exactly the same as a kind of spatial abstraction that is a sort of hierarchical list, right? It is a kind of collection, right? It kind of draws things Mm -hmm. together in the way that Mm -hmm. um, lists do. And then, you know, I think, crucially, the data operations of BuzzFeed give us an invitation to think about how uh, analytics is this kind of nebulous and ever-changing way of organizing culture and knowledge and capital. Mm -hmm. Buzzfeed uh, is different from social media platforms like Facebook or the other dominant platforms like Google, which are about aggregating. Facebook's about aggregating content created elsewhere into a nice, clean newsfeed for you to follow. Google is about aggregating like as much of the web as they can, and then you know, offering you a pathway through all of that all of that data. Buzzfeed actually disaggregates content that it produces in house and like sends it off into the into the web, right? Or and in, into mobile platform economies. And then what it does is it it tracks you know where its content goes and how quickly it's shared. Uh, what its click-through rates are mm-hmm. in order to glean in a different kind of way what people are doing and how they're doing it and then they feed that into their in-house analytics system in order to figure out which content is hot like right like what's gonna sing to as many people as quickly as possible and then that's the knowledge that they pitch to their ad clients mm-hmm. who they create in you know in-house curated advertisements for. And so it's a different kind of model. And it, I think it's essentially about time, right? Like it's essentially about mapping the the circulation, right, of, of little morsels of culture of memes and things like that in real time, right? So mm-hmm. uh, and then making calculations based off of that tracked activity in order to, you know, extract as much value from that knowledge as they can, right? So it's kind of creating this, like, monopoly of knowledge over cultural circulation that then it sells and tries to um, extract value from.
0: Mm-hmm. It's at this point in your book that you take a turn to discuss the ways in which listing is a cultural technique that can displace the processes and logic of logistical modernity with the poetics of listing. Can you Mm. talk about how that final chapter uh, engages the argument and the history that you've laid out and how it comes to close the book and on what note? Yeah.
1: So um, once I started thinking about BuzzFeed as about essentially about time in this kind of way some surprising resonances with some of the literature that's been and some of the debates that have been arising in media archaeology helped me to think through some of these other aspects of of list poetics that I had been playing with and trying to understand how they fit into the picture right so buzzfeed is essentially about time and i use buzzfeed as a kind of paradigm paradigmatic example but i think data analytics and digital culture broadly conceived are essentially about time right there and that's why that's the utility of the term logistics to me because logistics is all about just in time and so this temporal aspect of contemporary computational or digital culture demands from us that we that we develop methods that are that are attentive to these temporal operations. Right. And so media archeology span has been very much about trying to find tools through which to think about the way that these, these devices and networks process our sense of time, right. And the way that they kind of impose certain temporal experiences upon users and uh, upon communities and, and things like that. And, you know, there's the general kind of mainstream argument that time is disappearing or We're all experiencing a shared kind of real time together. But in actuality, I think there's never been a larger plethora of different times, right? Like computational Mm -hmm. time, is essentially and fundamentally ontologically different from human time and not every human, like there is no universal human time either, right? So someone working Mm -hmm. in an Amazon factory experiences time in a very different way than an academic does in the cultural milieu in which they find themselves, right? And so being attentive to these like different, like these differences, and slippages of time helps us to start thinking about data and the rhythms of information in a different kind of way. And so what Wolfgang Ernst, who's a very kind of provocative and influential media theorist associated with media archaeology, his work shows that, you know, actually what data operations and their emphasis on this kind of real time tracking and uh, aggregation uh, are channeling rather ancient forms of organizing time, right, which are about aggregation and which are about is kind of he calls it um, counting rather than recounting, right? So, right. A, you know, ancient storytelling techniques incorporate this kind of accumulation, this on and on and on and on, rather than the sort of um, if then of of a narrative, right? And so I started to think a little bit about like this, these poetics of time and and because Homer's catalog of ships is a list. Right. (laughs) And, you know, there are all these like ancient forms of conveying a story of conveying information about the past that are not about a narrative structure, but are actually about this kind of aggregation. And so that. Helped me to kind of transition into this new register where we can also see, you know, a whole host of complicated list operations that are much more about poetics and are about, as I was mentioning earlier, I kind of jumped the gun, but allowed me to kind of end the book in thinking uh, in this more generative mode, right, about how this, this kind of the and 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 of infinity helps to kind of Explore and maybe even explode the boundaries of the way that we are used to thinking about the world, and so mm-hmm. the the chapters organized around um, some some such
0: explorations. Uh, maybe to close our discussion of the book, can you talk about the way that that meditation comes to the ideas of heterotopia and wonder?
1: Yeah. Those, so those are. Ways that I try to describe these operations of uh, list poetics, right, so it's about trying to kind of collect the world like wonder is about in the way I'm thinking it through in the chapter is about kind of trying mm-hmm. to to collect the world right and not to impose a kind of causal relationship on events, necessarily simply to enumerate them right and so there's this quite rich tradition of literary and poetic thinking. And writing and express an expression uh, of of just pulling the world in, right, and trying to mm-hmm. sort of just uh, mm-hmm. pull as much of it in, in under this frame as possible, and to just kind of you know to inspire or kind of pull out a sense of wonder. Um, and so Chris Marker is a filmmaker that I think is really very strongly operating in this register, right? So his films mm-hmm. just resist our conventional way of understanding film and film narrative, right? They they, they they refuse and just will not abide by those structures. I tried to sort of suggest that this formal structure of that we see in so many lists, this on, 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 uh, is at play and even something like film. And it offers us a a way to describe what uh, artists like this are trying to explore, which is, um, you know, a sense of wonder of the world and a sense of sort of probing the boundaries of sensory and cognitive experience. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, heterotopia. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. So that, um, this is another, I think, useful kind of heuristic or frame through which to think some other literary lists that are, operating in the same, do, trying to do the same thing, right? Borges is the master of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Borges is, is constantly inviting us to do is to like stand back from the conditions of knowing that we take for granted to stand back and think about how we know what we know, when we know it, you know, in this historical moment. And so he crafts these lists that are intentionally impossible right like right. the famous one that Foucault starts his book the order of things with the analytical language of john wilkins which is about this chinese encyclopedia that just has no the classification system of the animals in the encyclopedia is just impossible right it's uh, i don't have it in front of me but <laughs> yeah. it's like you know yeah, the, yeah. the entries move from you know drawn with fine hamilcar brush to etc to have just broken the, the pitcher of water to you know, from a long way off, look like flies, right? And they just like intentionally disrupts our expectations for what a list should look like, what a classification Mm -hmm. should look like. And in that moment, he sort of, it's a moment of rupture, right? Where we like all of a sudden think about the conditions of possibility for knowing something that govern our, our everyday lives in the historical circumstances in which we find ourselves or into which we're kind of thrown. And so this was the way that Foucault uh, read that list and why he opened his book with that list is because that's what he was trying to do, right? Is to mm-hmm. create a a long-term kind of intellectual project that was about exploring precisely those boundaries, and those borders of thought in different historical moments and how they're drawn and uh, how they're different, how they change. He wasn't so good on how they change, but he was really, really good on how they're sort of bordered. And so... This project is obviously very inspired by that Foucaultian gesture, right? Because mm-hmm. this is as he's sort of seeking the borders of knowledge. I'm suggesting that the borders of knowledge are drawn on material forms l- like lists. Not only lists, but certainly they're a very important uh, important structure in that in that story.
0: Well, Liam, thanks for sharing some of your intellectual project with us. Again, we've been talking about list cultures knowledge and poetics from Mesopotamia to BuzzFeed. Do you have anything that you're working on now? Maybe what's the next step for you in, in writing and research? What could we be looking for uh, in the future?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I'm kind of in this moment now where uh, one big project has is now out there in the world and it will go Mm -hmm. and do whatever it does. And so um, I'm able to start to scratch some of the itches that, uh, that have been nagging at me uh, as I've guided that shift to port. So actually kind of interestingly, and I didn't plan it this way, but the subtitle of the book is, is Knowledge of Poetics, Mesopotamia to Buzzfeed. So there's basically two directions there, right? There's Mesopotamia and there's Buzzfeed. And actually I'm working on two on those very projects. So one of them is thinking about the history of media theory and the work of Harold Innes who sort of inv- invented media theory in a certain kind of way by looking back to the origins of writing in Mesopotamia and uh, and the Fertile Crescent? So updating, rethinking some of Innis's work in light of contemporary developments around infrastructure, logistics, and some of the stuff um, that I talk about in the book. And that's related to the Buzzfeed stuff, which is that I'm uh, really interested in kind of. Building that case study out uh, into something a little bit larger and understanding, you know, kind of digital media industries uh, in the way that they are extracting value in, uh, in different kinds of ways and are uh, morphing nebulous kinds of structures that, that adapt and change according to new sort of innovations in data analytics and calculation and computation. So
0: those are the two things on the go. That's great. Uh, again, Liam, thanks for taking the time to, to talk. I hope that uh, everyone listening will check out the book. So, again, Liam, just uh, thanks for joining us on New Books in Intellectual History. Thanks very much, Carl. It was a total pleasure.